Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, investing in local communities, economies, and a sustainable future. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Member SIPC. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Now, let me get to my morning must read as an entree to Steve Case on technology and the people we need to make America better. This is from the wonderful Noah Feldman of Harvard, one of my favorite, favorite people on law and constitution. As I argued in a column I wrote at 3 a.m. after the election, it's all about the Constitution now, the protection of sanctuary cities, and his example of how the Constitution protects minority rights, in this case, the rights of cities that dissent on immigration policy. With us is Steve Case, AOL co-founder and author of The Third Wave. I can't say enough about the accessibility of his book. And I would suggest out of Punahou that you grew up in the sanctuary state. <laughs> Hawaii is the absolute crucible, almost almost a test tube, if you will, right. of these, these, these emotions that are buffeting America right now. If Hawaii was a sanctuary state for so many, particularly out of Asia, Tell us about your thoughts on sanctuary cities and what we do if we build walls around them. Well, I did have the opportunity to grow up in Hawaii, which is sort of a melting pot. There are a lot of different people yeah. from a lot of different countries. And even as a, as a uh, young Caucasian guy, I was actually in the minority there, not the, not the majority. So I had a sense of what was possible when you brought different people, had different perspectives, different backgrounds, different outlooks to, together. I think that was what's made not just Hawaii great, but America great. We've always been a great immigrant nation. Now, we need to figure out how to strike the right balance in terms of enforcing the rules of, of the road while also still being welcoming. Uh, I'm a little concerned that the applications to the schools, particularly uh, you know, PhDs, things like that from other countries are, are down. You know, requests for visas are down. We need to make sure we are welcoming to people while still for enforcing our laws. And that's particularly important in the technology right. sector, the innovation sector. That's where a lot of, you know, a lot of 40 percent of the Fortune 500 companies were started by immigrants. 50 percent almost of, of Silicon Valley companies were started by immigrants. So we need to figure out how to strike this, this, this balance. I hope that will be more of a focus uh, right. going forward. Steve Case, of course, the co-founder of AOL, now chairman and CEO of Revolution, the author of The Third Wave, an Entrepreneur's Vision of the Future. And I should also add someone who's advised President Obama on innovation and entrepreneurship, a member of the former President's Council on Jobs and Competitiveness. He joins us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. Great to see you. Good morning. Good uh, here to be in New York. Let me start with, with the government angle here. We talk a lot about how to catalyze or encourage innovation and entrepreneurship. As you've been thinking about this, as you've been dealing with it, what role should the government play? What can the government do well to, to kickstart innovation? Well, one thing it could do, and hopefully will do this year, is sort of level the playing field in terms of access to capital. Right now, if you're in a place like New York City or Boston or San Francisco, the whole Silicon Valley area, uh, you do pretty well, and the entrepreneurs there can raise the capital they need. But most of the country, most entrepreneurs can't. Last year, the data is pretty uh, sobering that 78% of venture capital went to just three states, 
California, New York, and Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. The other 47 states got 22%. So we need to, what we, we're focused on what we call the rise of the rest and help those entrepreneurs in, in those places. The other is to, in this third wave that's just emerging now, which will be the next evolution of the internet and really uh, disrupt you know, some sectors like education, healthcare, transportation, food, agriculture, getting the regulations right will be critical. How do you, you know, keep bad things from happening and make sure that the food our kids eat at school doesn't make them sick or you know, driverless cars don't create havoc, but have a bias towards enabling good things to happen and, and, and unleashing that, that innovation. I think actually, the government did that pretty well with the internet when they kind of you know, put the money in to build the basic research that made the internet possible and then commercialized uh, the internet and, and had, a, had a light touch approach to regulation in those early days, 30 plus years ago. Hopefully that will be the case in some of these new emerging sectors as well, because that will enable the United States to, to remain the most uh, entrepreneurial nation. You've got a new partner at Revolution. That's J.D. Vance, author of Hillbilly LG. I think a lot of us have, have read the book and, and know of his his work, he's setting out to, to look for innovation, new companies outside of uh, California, New York, uh, and Massachusetts. How's he going to go about doing that? How do you do that at the firm? How do you look for, for pockets of innovation outside of those those three states? Well, there's two parts. We started an initiative about three years ago called Rise of the Rest, and I've traveled by bus 6,000 miles, visited 26 cities and places like Detroit, Pittsburgh, Atlanta, Phoenix, Albuquerque, Madison, Minneapolis, you know, Des Moines, St. Louis, really all over the country, trying to understand what's happening in each of those cities and try to champion the, the entrepreneurs in each of those cities, tell their stories, attract more capital to their to their companies and to their, their cities. So that's what we're doing at the Revolution. And J.D. Vance just joined us uh, recently. We announced that uh, last month. He, of course, when he wrote the book, Hillbilly Elegy, it was a huge bestseller. I think it sold a million copies all, already and really told the story of a lot of people in this country that do feel kind of left out and left behind by technology, by digitization, by by globalization. And and he was at the any time he was writing the book, he actually was in Silicon Valley working for Peter Thiel, uh, uh, focused on uh, and, uh, and venture capital investments. But when I met him last fall, he said he was planning to leave Silicon Valley, move home to Ohio, which is uh, where he was born and raised, because he wanted to not just define the problem, as he did in the book, he'll build the elegy, but be part of the solution. And one part of that solution, there are others as well, oh. is trying to level the playing field, get more capital, going to more entrepreneurs, in Ohio and other places. So he'll be moving back and forth between Ohio, where he'll be based, and Washington, D.C., okay. where, where we'll be based, but spending a lot of time on the road talking about his book and talking about the rise to rest and championing these entrepreneurs that really have the opportunity to build the next great iconic companies mm-hmm. if we pay attention and if we fund them. Do you associate uh, in Ohio the same pixie dust that I see in San Francisco, which is top-flight academics? Ohio happens to have that. Yeah, it's an advantage that they've got a Case Western Reserve and the, and the rest of the good people. There. And great expertise in sectors, whether it's Cincinnati. My first job actually out of college was Procter & Gamble in, in Cincinnati. There are a lot of consumer tech What would you companies. do for Procter & Gamble? I was doing you what call they call brand management. There. What, what the hell is brand management? <laughs> well, it, was, it was basically when I was 20 one years old, I was still learning what it was. Basically, they, they assign you to uh, work on a particular product. I was there at the same time that uh, See, he won't Steve answer. Ballmer. He sold toothpaste store to door. <laughs> I, I worked in what they called it at the time the toilet goods division. They had the, they, they, because they're good marketers, they renamed it Beauty Care after a while. But it was like the toothpaste and shampoo. And I, and I worked on a hair permanent product that failed in test market. And I also worked on uh, 
a couple other other kind of you know hair care products. But I learned a lot, particularly about marketing. Even the people used to tease when AOL was kind of in the 1990s, really rapidly expanding. We were giving out free trial discs all the time, uh, and that was sort of a, you know, a lesson we learned from P&G. They were great at getting people to try their product yeah, with free samples. So essentially, AOL got got big because of the P&G no, lessons I around, the around free yeah. samples. Yeah. Sorry, I'm grateful for my deal. experience. At P&G. But going back to your question, Ohio is, has great uh, you know, talent there, but historically, there's been a brain drain. People grew up there, went to school there but felt like they had to move to California or, or New York yeah. or some other place to, to you know kind of find their opportunity now they're realizing they don't have to leave and, and because of the innovations really now happening right. everywhere just so you understand David and you're way too young to understand this we used to use Steve's AOL discs that you get in the mail those would be beer coasters for your Jenny cream <laughs> ale. you could you could just say look that we, we got a whole brace of them we'd have like six or 12 of them for, for all. Reduce, reuse, recycle. They're the time. great coaster yeah, yeah, for 10 right. years. <laughs> Steve Case with us on Bloomberg Surveillance. We talk about geography here. If I'm starting a company, um, do, am I looking for a place to put it? Do I say, oh, look, it's, it's less expensive to do it in Detroit. I'm being encouraged to do it in Detroit. I'll go there. Or I might go uh, to D.C. Or I might go to Silicon Valley. How, how does that calculus work? How does somebody decide where to start a company in the year 2017? Well, I think the, big, the biggest uh, driver in this next 10, 15, 20 years, what I've called in the book the, the third wave, will be domain expertise. Mm-hmm. If you're really trying to disrupt uh, healthcare, for example, being in Cleveland near the Cleveland Clinic or in Baltimore near Johns Hopkins or near you know, United Health in Minneapolis, would partnerships become more important, being closer to those partners will become important. We're seeing this in cities now like Pittsburgh that is known as sort of the steel capital, helped power the whole industrial revolution because of Carnegie Mellon, their expertise in robotics and their history of making things. There's a lot of innovation there. Even Uber, kind of a prototypical Silicon Valley company, is focusing its innovation around driverless cars in Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh. So you're starting to see agriculture, what some people call ag tech. Uh, There's innovation happening in Silicon Valley, but there's also innovation in places like Louisville yeah. and Lincoln, even St. Louis, which okay. is where Monsanto's based. There's a lot of engineers who understand a lot about in, farming. In your book, the last, and you're, you're brilliant on this, you've got like 10 pages of photographs, and the last three pages is kids in Pittsburgh, kids in Ohio, et cetera, et cetera. Aren't they there because they can actually afford to get to the end of the month paycheck? That's a big. This is like a huge deal. That's a big part. Now, some of them are there just because they happen to be there and they're starting companies, but some of them are there because they believe they can build companies there, and the cost of living is much lower. And I've seen this also as we travel around the winner of our Rise of the Rest pitch competition in Detroit. Actually, started his company in San Francisco. But moved to Detroit partly for cost of living. It was going to be less than half a cost for you know, rent and salaries and, and so forth. Partly because he was from there and wanted to go back there and raise his family there. And partly because he wanted to be part of the renaissance, the, the rebuilding, the reimagining of, of, of Detroit. We're starting to see that all over the country. What had been a brain drain, that brain drain uh-huh. is now slowing. And even we're beginning to see a very early signs of a boomerang of talent where people who felt they had to go to the coast now are be- beginning to realize that you know, the, the regional entrepreneurship is beginning to accelerate and, and they can really start a company anywhere. How has the, the environment for starting a company and growing a company changed since you started AOL? Oh, it's now changed a, a lot. And when, we, yeah. when we got started, venture capital was, was still uh, you know, relatively early days. It's a relatively recent phenomenon. When we started in the Washington, D.C. area, it was not very startup friendly. It was a you know kind of a big company town, kind of a government town. So for all our venture capital came from other places, Boston, Chicago, San Francisco. None of it came from the, 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 the D.C. area. Uh, and even when I graduated from college, I talk about this in the, in the book. Mm-hmm. I read a book called The Third Wave by Alvin Toffler when I was in college, oh. and it talked about essentially the Internet 
and I was mesmerized by it. I wanted to do it. But when I graduated in 1980, there was no internet companies you know, to go to and there was no startup culture. So I couldn't really do my own thing. So it's really changed quite dramatically in the last few decades. What's amazing about this, David, is you read Elvin Toffler, you read The Third Wave, and you had your Carmen Ghia. You know, you had a Carmen Ghia. And if you're a rich kid, you had a sob. And and you put your top, you could pick up girls just by putting your third wave on the back, you know, the back of the four seat <laughs> car. They, they think you were sensitive. Your shifter was on the dash, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. In no, the sob, no, not that, your no. Well, that was a sob. Your yeah. car is pretty good. My first <laughs> yeah. car was the exploding Pinto, which uh, <laughs> I got, got for four bucks. I didn't tell my parents about it because they probably would have been scared. A fine engineered vehicle, that Pinto. Oh. Uh, Mike Michael Barr still drives one, I think. I you had two drive, of them. You had two Pintos <laughs> at one point. Uh, talk about energy suck. It was terrible. David Gura and Tom Keene in New York with uh, Steve Case of Revolution uh, here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. And Steve, I wanted to ask you about um, sort of the, the conversation about manufacturing that we're having right now. The president talks an awful lot about bringing jobs back, and we don't hear a whole lot about the future of manufacturing or uh, about technological advancement or uh, automation. Uh, are we are we missing out on some component of that conversation by not talking about those issues? Yeah, I think so. I, 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 it's great for the president to be trying to keep as many jobs in the country or, you know, from moving o- offshore. But I think we have to not just kind of think about what was there 30, 40 years ago, but what's going to be there 30 or 40 years from now and make the investments in the industries of the future. Now, advanced manufacturing is starting to show some momentum, and they're actually, because of robotics, it's an odd dynamic, but because of some of the automation technologies, manufacturing that was moved offshore 20 years ago is now beginning to come back because there is less of a labor cost. So the bad news is there's fewer jobs. The good news is some of the jobs that were going away are are, are coming back. So that's an example where there's sort of a kind of a surprise. Emerge, but I think the real opportunity is in this third wave is to figure out where things are going and figure out what partnerships are necessary to, to lead the way. I think there's a broader social discussion around artificial intelligence and robotics and driverless cars and how do you deal with the fact that a lot of jobs will be displaced, a lot of jobs will be lost because of those innovations. I think the only way to deal with that is to try to make sure you're offsetting that by backing entrepreneurs in these emerging rise of the rest cities. So it's not just about job destruction, it's also about job creation. Startups are the big job creator. We just can't just focus on backing the startups in places like Silicon Valley and not in places like uh, Detroit. I'll ask you what it's like to be a, a founder of a big... We had Tim Armstrong here a couple weeks back, and there was a rebranding and talking about Oath and all of all of that stuff. But I wonder, when you, when you found a company, how far out are you looking? Uh, could you have envisioned what AOL is today, how many iterations it's been through, where it's headed uh, now? How, how forward-looking are you when you're starting a company like that. Well, you have to be pretty forward-looking. Yeah. And again, when we when we started 32 years ago, uh, it was early days. Only 3% of people were online at all at the time, and they're only online about an hour a week. And so when we said we wanted to get America online, get the world online, we knew it was going to be a tough task. The surprise to me, frankly, was it took longer to get going than I thought. It was really a decade before we finally get it got started. tracked. Yeah. It, was just, it was just, it struck me as an obvious idea, yeah. but the reality <laughs> is most people didn't think yeah. it was something most people wanted to you know, bother with. So it just took a you know, long, you know, long-term view. I think the challenge is to have that vision, have that that focus on long term, but couple that with with execution. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, Thomas Edison said this a century ago: vision without execution is hallucination. So yeah. how do you strike the balance between <laughs> okay. having the big idea, having yes. the big vision, uh, but also executing and having the patience and perseverance? Yeah. I think it'll become more important again in the third way. The second way, there are a lot of overnight successes: Snapchat, Facebook, etc. Uh, and the third okay. way, it's going to be more like the first way. It's going to take no. more like ten years in the making before you have that overnight success. Let me ask the question, and I'm doing this, folks. I got my. 
iPhone out in my fancy brown case. Steve's got his iPhone out in his tasteful black case. You got your iPad on page 242 of the third wave. What's your advice for the third wave of the manufacturing shop known as Apple Computer? What do they do? Well, I think they're doing a great job. Did you have a Lisa? I, I did not own one. I certainly saw it when it got launched and, and was. And then uh, you saw there was a dog of dogs. That was, that was Lisa a dog was a of dogs. Precursor of the Macintosh. Yes. It was yeah. a, it was a for, it was sort of a, an enterprise office uh, computer based on some of the Xerox Park technology. How do they avoid Elisa? What's your What's your advice? And they have you have to keep pushing. You have to keep trying. You can, and they have to open up some new markets. I, I've, I've said for some time that Apple, even though their focus has been on sort of horizontal markets, has to start focusing on some vertical markets. Healthcare being one. I saw just over the weekend that there's some rumors that they're working on some technologies around diabetes, other kind of things. I think figuring out how to take the expertise they have around interface and simplicity and, and, and accessibility and apply that to other other sectors. So I think it's not just about the horizontal computing platforms, whether it be a phone or an, an iPad or, or, or computers themselves, about how you take that expertise into more vertical markets like, uh, like healthcare. It's one-sixth of our economy. Everybody agrees it's broken. Uh, innovation is necessary. A company like Apple could be a great innovator there. Is that the rich? You've mentioned healthcare a few times now. Is that the richest vein now for for innovation? Do you? Think? I think so, just because it is such a big part of the economy and it's so broken. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and there are clearly ways to use technology to make you know care more convenient uh, and more accessible, more more affordable, uh, and more personalized. Uh, the, the, this one scary thing I, I, I talk about in the book is MD Anderson, one of the great cancer hospitals, says when people come there for second opinions, twenty five percent of the time they reverse the first opinion. That's which means stunning. A lot of That's time, in your book. Yeah, a lot of That's a lot of stunning. people go. You know, now some of it's because they're at some. You know, regional hospital that doesn't have the expertise in that. But some of it's because that the technology hasn't been embraced to really be much more specific around you know, pathways and, and identifying what the problem is, therefore yeah. what the, the diagnosis, what the, what the solution, the therapy uh, should be. So clearly there's a role for technology to play. Same time, one of the key lessons I, I talk about is that it's not just about the technology. It's not just about the software. It's got to be people. It's got to be right. culture. And the, you know, the revolution in healthcare will be getting doctors yeah. uh, and hospitals to think differently. The revolution in education will be getting you know, teachers and professors okay. to think differently, not just getting the engineers to write I, I code. Got, I got 40 seconds left is all on Steve Case and the third wave. How do you manage your email? It's your fault. How <laughs> yeah, do you manage there, there, your I email? I must admit, there are mornings I wake up and say, oh, this is a stupid idea. Who's, who's, who got this thing started? No, I, I, I have multiple accounts for starters. You have I, multiple I, accounts. I, I, I have I've been like fighting Daily this. newsletters, things like that. I, I have go to one, uh, one account. Uh, and so I, it's one way to kind of, you know, I, I, when I have time in the day, I'll kind of look at that. Okay. Uh, and I also just try to forward it to other people and <laughs> somebody else kind of run, deal with it with much Oh, I never do that. But, uh, <laughs> but it, it, you know, it, it, I've been it, on the receiving end great, of that It's before. a great resource, <laughs> but sometimes it can be a, a source of uh, you know, frustration for all of us. It's your fault. Steve Case, Sorry. thank you so much. <laughs> Sorry. It is a fabulous book, folks, with a new epilogue that really brings it up to date with all that's going on in Washington. The Third Wave, Steve Case, an entrepreneur's vision I'll change the title of what to do with this nation. (laughs) Steve Case, the third wave, uh, very important effort. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member. SIPC. Joining us now from the Union Bank of Switzerland, he's run six marathons. 
Julian Emanuel? You've run six marathons? Absolutely. Are you one of those slugs that comes in at 5 p.m.? <laughs> Staggering away. Tell me how you do this. I'm as back of the packer as they get. Uh, you know, basically, it is all preparation and psychology. You get in there, you decide you're going to do it, you put in your miles uh, before the event, and you do it. And then the pain comes and you keep going. How do your ankles hold up, oh, wise one? Uh, th these ankles need plenty of support. <laughs> it's, it, it's a challenge. Uh, yeah. You know, there's a lot of pain, but it's just. It's a great experience. And going across the Verrazano Bridge must be just extraordinary. Well, the first time I did it, and it the feel the bridge actually sway yeah, yeah, was, cool. was, was, a little, <laughs> was a little bit unsettling, but you get used yeah, to it's it. It's okay. Route, uh, Route 16, Washington Street sways up in Boston as well. Julian Emanuel was with UBS as we talked the marathon and on this special Monday for New England and uh, really a special market as well. When you construct your research notes now, seriously, do you, do you construct them around a gauze of irrational exuberance or is there a sanity to where these equity valuations are? Well, so when you think about investing, you basically put forth a thesis and then you wait for it to develop. Obviously, if it develops, you perhaps increase your exposure to the thesis. And if it doesn't, you peel it back a little bit. Investors after the election uh, took on the thesis that the economy was going to grow stronger than had been yep. the case for the last many years. And that's what engendered the confidence. So the confidence readings seem very high. You might use the, uh, irrational exuberance simply because we haven't seen the confirmation either through the economy itself or through policy. However, the pent-up uh, um, investment psychology of getting rid of zero interest rates really has a long way to go. And we think that this thesis is going to have to play out over a number of quarters. It isn't just the first 100 days. Um, so, mm. you know, it's, it's really a, a wait-and-see mode for markets right now. So you uh, give me a sense of your optimism for something getting done in Washington. You're reevaluating the timetable here or – we, how pessimistic are you? I guess we've been rea we've been realistic <laughs> yeah, all okay. along, all right, and 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 basically, you know, the, the, it, the world never repeats itself. But the simple fact is, is that Ronald Reagan came to office in 1981, doubtless intending to do tax reform straight away, and he did it, but not until 1986. So you know, given the fact that there are divisions within the Republican Party, we need to be patient. We need to let things play out. And obviously, okay. the but what do you do? I, I mean, okay, that's great. And I get the idea I need to be patient, but am I going to be patient and enjoy a correction or a true bear market on the way to being patient? I, I mean, what I learned, and David, I was away for a week. I don't know if you noticed. People are baffled. <laughs> People are baffled about like what to do. They're not getting a lot of what to do. What is your prescription now? given where valuations are. So so very often, the best thing to do in investing, and I think it's it's a lot more of the time than people actually give it credit to, is to do nothing. Okay, so in, in our view, you're likely started a correction in the beginning of March. The market's gone sort of sideways as opposed to selling off more vigorously. We think that if the macro breaks a certain way over the next several weeks, and there are a lot of events coming up, including the potential closure of the government on April 28th, the market pulls back more. And that's the sort of situation yeah. where you need to be prepared to buy. Very quickly, and this happened to be the, you know, David, do you have women at your house that they go to drugstores and just acquire stuff? 
I, you know, the, the basket on occasion, that you, yes. on occasion. Okay, yeah. so I'm, I'm at the sink today looking down at something from a famous toothpaste company. I'm okay. like, why the hell did we buy this? That toothpaste company is trading at a blended 27 times mm. earnings, P.E. ratio. Which budges, the price or the earnings? Uh, the the price budges in, in in the near term in our view, and that's why when we look at the consumer sector and when we look at the market as a whole, you've got to be selective at these valuations. And and where there is value right now is yeah. technology, healthcare, and financials. We still like the financial story, despite the fact that the yield curve uh, flattening over the last. Do you see weeks. share buyback and dividend growth just continuing as a blended concept? Well, it's 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 been a part of this entire bull market. Yeah. We continue to see it. Just and see it. And look, if there's repatriation, you're certainly yeah. going to see a lot well, more of it. I'm going to give you the highest marks for staying in this market. We've got to go to cash. The world's going to die <laughs> as we know it. And uh, UBS has had the courage to say, no, you got to be in this market and, uh, and participate. We do that at 20453 We're talking equities with Julian Emanuel of UBS, a serious discussion about valuations right now. One of the themes through all of surveillance this morning, Julian, has been the lack of volatility. The VIX has gone from 12 to 16. Is that a normal VIX right now to see it? The historical normal is 20, ugly is 40. We're not ugly. We're actually pretty complacent. But is a 16 a 16 on the VIX? No, it, it, it's not normal Why is that? at all. Uh, well, because, again, going back to post-election, people uh, played their thesis. They, they got positioned the way they wanted, and now they're waiting. Um, and, in fact, if you look at the flows uh, year to date, uh, the public really has been the incremental buyer. But another thing has happened. Stocks don't move uh, similarly to each other on a day-to-day -day -day basis the way they did. And this lack of correlation is also driving volatility lower. But net-net, when you look at the risks, the VIX should be yeah. higher, and we think it does go higher. It's, it's earnings season now. We had some financials reporting last week, a couple more uh, later this week. Uh, is a theme shaping up to the, to the quarter earnings season? Yeah, well, we think that basically because you're at the valuation paradigms that, that you're at, um, that not only are you going to have to report good earnings, you're going to have to beat the number, um, which most companies do quarter in, quarter out, but that number is going to have to be good to begin with, and you're going to have to be a reasonably valued company because there's just, at, at almost 20 times trailing earnings across the broad market, there's less room for error given this macro overhang. Let's talk about that macro overhang. There, there is so much happening. How do you separate out the, the, the real risks from those that are distractions? Uh, it's, it, it's definitely a challenge. There's yeah. no, no question about it. And, and we're seeing things that we haven't seen before, um, particularly, you know, it, it unfolding in geopolitical theaters across the world. And the, the, frankly, it, you're in a situation where events could go in any number of directions. And so for us, again, uh, you're seeing the VIX actually start to pick up the last week or two in recognition of that fact, even as people don't make the stock market itself more volatile. But there's definitely hedging going on. So you have to be mindful of that. Is there the impulse to hunker down and look purely at fundamentals, or is that something you'd caution against it at this point? I think this is a very rare time. We haven't seen it that often over the course of the last 30 or 40 years. Politics really does move the fundamentals. And if you, you look at back at politics moving the confidence numbers higher, we've seen times throughout history where confidence actually causes the economy in a self-fulfilling prophecy 
to strengthen. We haven't seen that yet. We're not sure it's going to happen, uh, but we do expect incremental strength. On this debate on the, the soft data versus hard data and what the soft data yeah, is doing, you're, you're saying you're not yeah, seeing yeah, yeah. it. You're, you're not seeing the leading value of the, the soft data at this point. Yeah, it's you're, not there yet. You're a hard data guy. We, we we like to see the facts, and, and the facts are that the first quarter was, was quite weak. But on the other hand, when you look at the Fed commentary over the last several weeks, the Fed doesn't seem to be terribly concerned. Yeah. Right. I mean, I, I got all sorts of opinions on this. Macroeconomic advisors of St. Louis readjust second quarter call to 3.6%. How do you gyrate from 0.6 or 0.8, whatever the number comes in? Out to 3.6%. I mean, when does the switch... Have you noticed, David, where the switch got turned on? Or, you know, it's like one of those big theater toggle switches where the sparks go off when you turn the lights. Where's the, where's the toggle switch? Part of it is, is, is the difficulty in measuring GDP. Um, and a former colleague uh, of ours really made the point that GDP is a very noisy indicator and that if you want to get a good look at how the economy is moving uh, in, in a more clean basis, there are three things to look at. Bank lending, which has been weak as of late. Uh, ISMs, which really is, you know, uh, is something that's been quite strong. Yes or no, are conditions uh, going to get Is that get hard better. data or soft data? That, that, that's, that's hard data. ISM is that, hard data. Yes, we, we consider that to be hard data, even though there's an opinion aspect. Right. But it tells you what the people on the ground are seeing. And the last piece right. of hard data that's very important is the weekly jobless No, it's not. Number. Stop it. it the, is, hard, the hard data right now is the Yankees are killing it. Killing it in April. That's the hard data. I'm a Mets fan, Tom. Uh -oh. The Yankees are killing it. <laughs> they both are. No one oh, come on. No one expected the Yankees to kill it. I mean, Michael Barr, help me here. The Yankees, are you kidding me? They won seven in a row in April. That's hard data. Meanwhile, Tiger fans over here, McMiggy's hurt. This is a mess. It's a mess. No one cares about the Tigers. Someone get a memo to Michael Barr. No one cares at all about the Detroit. Good morning, Detroit. Glad you're listening on Sirius XM Channel 119. Julian Emanuel, thank you so much. I, you know, full, you know, not that I would editorialize, but I'm in the Julian Emanuel camp on hard. I'm like, when did the Vogue, where did I ever read about soft data, hard data? No? I mean, come on. Well, it... it it, it's a function of the times. Things are more difficult to measure. The Internet's okay. made it that way. Julian Emanuel with UBS. Thank you so much. You're now joining us uh, at uh, studying at the University of Maine. He went to Delaware and then to San Francisco to lose his main accent, Michael Mayo, independent uh, bank analyst, one of the few that we uh, have on. Um, I want to go back to governance. And of course, you made a real splash with Bank of America a while back thinking about the minutia. You have a jaw dropping factoid in the Michael Mayo research, and that is Citigroup has a peer group different than the other major banks. A guy like me was thunderstruck by that. I mean, we compare them and they compare them to the same banks. And yet Citigroup, is this true, compares itself to the European banks? Um, Am I right? Let, let's take a step back here. So um, you know, I focus a lot on governance, as you mentioned. And when you look at the large U.S. banks, banks have been hardwired for safety. They have not been hardwired for better governance. So regulators did their job and they did it well to make sure banks are safe, but investors 
need to make sure that banks have proper governance. So that brings up Citigroup, and Citigroup's annual meeting is a week from tomorrow. Are you going? I, I'm going to the meeting. It's at in the East Village of New York City All at right. the Cooper Union, and I have 10 questions that I intend to yeah, ask. Yeah, but you're up in the cheap seats under the Dunkin' Donuts <laughs> sign, right? Well, I'll line up early to ask my question at <laughs> I'll least. bet you will. <laughs> And certainly one, one question relates to compensation and the peer group that Citigroup uses for compensation is different than the peer group they use for their financial comparisons. And less than one in 10 companies in the United States you know, uses that sort of technique and Citigroup is the only large bank to do so. So certainly one question is on compensation yeah. and peer groups. But the more germane question is why does the CEO letter of Citigroup say that you know they – have so much right. They say they're in the, they have the right model, the right strategy, the yeah. right customers, the right clients, the right people in the right places, but then they still have worst-in-class returns, worst-in-class okay. stock valuation. They missed their prior targets. They pushed their new targets okay, four fine. years out. So that, that's a, I, my mo most important question. I saw Mr. Corbett attending one of the, Trump, uh, the President Trump uh, festivities in Washington. Their chairman is someone everybody on Global Wall Street respects, Mr. Michael O'Neill, who's legendary within the business. If any chairman can write a ship, I would respectfully suggest it's Mr. O'Neill. Explain to us what a chairman does at a big bank. Well, not every bank has the chairman role separated from the CEO. Yeah. In the case of Citigroup, though, Chairman Mike O'Neill, he's you know he's been a rock star in banking for decades, so yeah. he's the right guy at the top of the company. You know, one question not explicitly asked, though, is, is he being too soft on management? So the job of a chairman is to make sure that um, the board is overseeing management properly to ensure that they have the right strategy and to ensure that they're being held accountable to executing on that strategy. Also, risk control at banks is always huge. I remember, I remember you agitating for more separation of those roles within within banks. Is is that does that continue? Do you continue to push for that? Is is it likely to happen at other at other banks? Well, one size doesn't fit all. Going yeah. back to Citigroup, sure. I, I was on your show when they had um, you know Dick Parsons and Vikram Pan at five. I said their names. I didn't like that combination. It was separated. On the other hand, you know Jamie Dimon has gotten the job done at J.P. Morgan you know for over a decade now. So I think if you execute well. You have double-digit returns of return on equity, and you're controlling your risk properly, then maybe it's okay, but I think it's situational. You mentioned J.P. Morgan. Let's talk about J.P. Morgan. They reported last week. Get your reaction to, to the earnings that we saw uh, from then. There was speculation ahead of time here that we wouldn't see uh, great growth in, in uh, the equities trading side of things. It seemed like they performed better than expected. Well, uh, J.P. Morgan, I still consider them the LeBron James okay. of banking, and that's because, like LeBron James, they have both offense and defense. Okay. And when it comes to J.P. Morgan in the first quarter, they, they certainly had the offense. They had strong capital markets growth. Uh, that's uh, underwriting and trading, and that did really well. Uh, and they also had some of the best <clears throat> net interest margin improvement yet. On the other hand, the defense side, you know, credit costs are still good. Mm -hmm. But they went up, yeah. and also their expense control wasn't quite as good. So better offense this yeah. quarter from Jake Morgan than defense. What size of a moonshot was Comerica for you? Don't tell me you said load the boat at $32 <laughs> a share. Where did you get into Comerica and say this is going to be a turnaround of turnarounds? Um, well, you know, I upgraded Comerica for the first time in over two decades. The stock almost when? Uh, that was early last year. Um, and You're sick. And the, so that, but the the, the the reason Comerica is so important to me is because it shows when you 
you know, spend energy on this governance and these oversight issues. You know, I went to the Comerica annual meeting. So did 10 other investors, most of whom stood up and said, you need to do a better job. One month later, Comerica announced restructuring. Comerica was the best performing of the 30 largest banks last year. So when someone says, oh, you're checking the box, you're doing these annual meetings things for no reason. Wrong. It helps investors. Everybody's good. We have spent too much money on chocolate this weekend. Help me here with how I, where's the next Comerica? We spend all our time, Dave and I are as guilty of this as anybody, talking about four or five big banks. The Comerica's under there, those 25 or 30 regional kind of big banks. Where's the next Comerica? America. Well, my thought is there's always underperformers. There's always banks in the bottom half or the bottom quartile. Those are potentially the next Comerica. So, you know, as stocks trade from day to day and we get the more earnings reports from big banks. So you don't week, have an identified stock you can share with us this morning. It's going to be the next Comerica. Uh, I, 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 you know, I can't tell you first, Tom, but I can maybe Damn. tell you after I tell a few others. <laughs> See how we got around that, Carl? It's just... Uh, <laughs> but having said that, let me, let me. You want a stock here? Please. I figure I have to come on the show Done. and give you yeah. a stock. Price of admission. Yeah. And so, you know, what I do over the weekend, you know, if you do this job long enough, is I, you know, I read annual reports. So, the marriage is great, folks. <laughs> 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 you know, the, the, the bar is high for a bank analyst to have fun. Um, but I reread Goldman Sachs annual report last night. And to say one time, yeah. to pound your chest, hey, you told us to downsize, but we didn't. At least three times in the CEO letter of Goldman Sachs, right. they advertised the fact that, you know, we're one of the few firms that have remained committed to serving clients a lot of areas. Then they go, we did not extrapolate the bad conditions. And then they, in the last section, the, the follow-up by Lloyd Blankfein in the CEO letter, he goes, in the past decade or so, some in our industry pulled back from sales and trading businesses as to say, but we didn't. And then they repeat. Oh, come on. And then they, re- they repeat in the report that like the fourth quarter backlog was good to the story of bank earnings so far as Wall Street's doing well, right. Main Street's not doing well. So why not own a Wall Street bank like Goldman Sachs before they report earnings tomorrow? Okay, very good. I got 20 seconds left. That's all. Does Gary Cohn working for the Trump bank down in Washington want to get rid of Glass-Steagall, uh, bring back Glass-Steagall? Would that help, Mr. Blankfein? You know what? Look at first quarter results. Okay, lending, traditional corporate lending, and overall lending is the worst in six years. On the other hand, debt underwriting, raising debt in the yeah. capital market is good. From a customer standpoint, Glass-Steagall has been good, evidenced by this quarter. Okay, we've run out of time. Never enough time with Michael Mayo on the banks as well. He'll be at the city. Maybe we'll get him on after Citibank, see how that goes. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC.